Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Thanks, Amy. Good morning again. Uh, we are uh, into our last week in, in a series uh, uh, that we, we started six weeks ago uh, on the gospel and how it, how it transforms all of life. So what we were wanting to do in this series, hoping to, hoping to get to in this series, was to, to bring some clarity to the idea of, of this term, the gospel. As a church, our vision is to see the gospel transform everything. And as elders, we began to have the, have the conversation, do we actually know what that means? How does that actually play out in, in life? And so we came up with five topics that we thought would hit everyone at some point in, in life. And so we started with relationships. We talked about relationships and how the gospel impacts those. We talked about our, our leisure, our time of enjoyment of the things that God has given here on earth. We talked about how the gospel transforms those and how the gospel transforms our work, how we work uh, day to day, and also how the gospel transforms our money. That's what we hit last week. And so this week, um, we're, we're ending on an up note, right, in suffering. Um, but here's where we're headed. We're, we're looking at the topic of suffering and how the gospel should be at work transforming our view of suffering. And here's the framework that we've used over the last weeks um, as we walk through those topics. It's, it's this. We've answered the questions, what's God's intent in this topic? What's God's intent how have we, as people, how have we uh, distorted God's good intent for, for this area of life? And then how does the gospel uh, affect and transform that thing? So this morning, we're, we're going to do that very thing. What's God's intent? How, how have we distorted that? And then what, how does the gospel transform our suffering? All right, so, so let's just jump right in. What's God's intent? All right, that, that's an easy answer because here's what it is. It wasn't. It wasn't God's intent that we would suffer, right? Do you re- remember from the very beginning of creation, what did God say when he created all things? It is good, right? It, it's good. And so everything he created was in its original form and intent good. And so really the topics we've discussed over the last few weeks, all of that was good, our relationships were meant to be good. Our leisure, our time of enjoyment was meant to be good. Our work was good and pleasing. Our, our, our money, our possessions were to be seen as a good thing because it's seen as clearly God's possessions and, and money. He has entrusted them to us. All of those things, good. Whether that was God's intent. All of that was good. So, so what happened? That, that's the question. What happened? We've walked through this before week by week, haven't we? God said to Adam in the garden, everything in this garden, I'm giving over to your dominion. I'm giving over to your care. You're the steward of everything except for one tree. You cannot eat of one tree. For in the day that you do that, you will surely, come on, die, right? You, you will surely die. 
And and so we probably know the story from there, right? If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you, you may actually be tired of the story. Adam and Eve thought they knew better thought they knew better, and so they took things into their own hands. They grabbed onto something that was not theirs. They listened to the lies of the enemy, and they chose to eat the fruit of the tree. Does God always keep his promises? Yes. He he always keeps his promises. And so we get to Genesis chapter 3, and God comes to the man and the woman, and he gives out curses to them both. The ultimate curse What was the keeping of his promise that they would die. That they would die. Now, Here's a question. Do they die instantly? Right? Is it like that snow white scene where they, they eat the fruit and stiff as a board fall over dead? Do, do they die instantly? No. God said, you will die. You will die. That will happen. That, that will happen. Right? But, but the idea we get from that is someday. Someday. It's not going to happen instantly, but, but, but someday you will die. Your relationship with your spouse in the meantime will be tense. Each of you will be looking for power over the other. The very thing that you were made to do to work, enjoyment in your work, will become difficult, will become ineffective, will become labor-intensive, will become trying. Your leisure, leisure, your enjoyment of life will be, will be strained. Your work will be hard. You will be thrown out of the good, enjoyable garden that God gave you to manage. So do you see what's happened? And so do you see what's happened here? Our sin has distorted all of God's good gifts. It's distorted our our relationships. It's distorted our leisure. It's distorted our work. It's distorted our money, our possessions. Distorted because of sin. And on top of that, on top of that, there is physical pain. Physical suffering, greater pain in childbirth is dealt out to the woman. In pain you will eat of the ground all of the days of your lives, God says to to Adam. Sweat and labor and toil painfully in your work. So so what is that? That's suffering, right? That, That is suffering. Suffering exists because of sin. As a short statement, there's a lot that we could work in, in through that, but, but that, that's where I'll leave it. Suffering exists because of sin. And before we go any further into this, let me, let me give a few disclaimers that, that, are, that are of concern to me, of, of interest to me that I, I want to communicate. And here's a few disclaimers for us as we talk about suffering. First, suffering is relative, it's, it's relative. And here's what I mean by that. You, what, what may be suffering for you may not be suffering for someone else. Suffering is relative and it is defined by the person walking through it. We have, we have five boys at home and so you can imagine that there's a, a lot of physical interaction. We'll just say that, all right? Um, and often what happens is one of our boys will punch, slap, or kick one of their other brothers in a fun game we call punch, slap, or kick your brother, all right? And so they'll do that. And inevitably, the brother who is punched, slapped, or kicked will, will, will go down like a professional soccer player, right? Holding a shin, right? And the other brother will instantly say, that didn't hurt, So what I've had to teach my boys over time and had to work with them on this difficult lesson is this. You don't get to determine whether or not that person is actually in pain. You don't get to determine that. That's not your job. 
That, that's not your job. Your job is to care for them in what seems like their pain. It's an uncaring, unloving, completely self-centered fool who would belittle the suffering of someone else because he doesn't understand it. And listen, I I confess that 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 has been me more times than I would like to admit. That that I I would look at someone else and say, get over it. Get, Get over it. Suffering is relative. It is, and because it's relative, there is no way that we're we're really going to be able to cover everything that we could cover this morning. Uh, you're facing suffering. I'm facing suffering. We're all facing suffering in different ways. So that's the first disclaimer. The second one is this. We're a fairly young church, right? And, and what I mean by that is many of you just started shaving weeks ago, right? Um, we're, we're a young church, and, and the mentality of, of young people is this. We are invincible, I will eat well, I'll exercise well, I'll stay away from harmful things, I'll live until the clothes that I'm wearing now will actually be in style again, not ironically, like I'm going to live for a long, long time. But I want to caution us here that, that you will face suffering, that, that you will, that the people around you will face suffering, maybe they are right now. And if we're not prepared with a deep belief in the gospel of Jesus, we will be rocked. We, we will be rocked. And so this morning, I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm actually trying to prepare us for what, what may come. In fact, many of you have faced extreme suffering over the last weeks, over the last months, over the last years. Suffering you never thought would come to you. Suffering that you never thought you would experience. And some of you cannot shake the suffering that you're going through. It just hangs on. It just hangs. And so on the one hand, we're young and we, we haven't faced a lot of suffering, generally speaking. We ha- haven't faced a lot. But on the other hand, many sitting around you right now are going through things that you would never have an idea about, never, never even understand. There are many sitting in this room now who are going through some dark and lonely seasons of suffering. And we've got to be aware of that as a people. Suffering's relative, but but it's all an effect of sin and evil entering into the world. Suffering will happen at, at some point, and it is happening right now in this room. And because of that, we've got to have a deep belief in, in the gospel that our hope is grounded in something stable. It's grounded in something stable. And, and so we've walked through the topics of relationship and leisure and work and money and how the gospel transforms all of those things. But what, but what if all of those things or even some of those things or even one of those things are taken from you? What then? How does the gospel transform your life then when one of those things, when some of those things, when maybe all of those things are taken from you to some extent? The the question we're looking at to to get at this morning is how does the gospel transform your view of suffering, your your suffering? So what I'd like to do uh, here is is just get a better understanding of of what that could look like, or at least see an example of someone else who faced suffering, who then asked questions, who then had doubts in the midst of losing everything. Job. Maybe you know his story. So how does the story start? We, we read part of it this morning. He was a man who feared God. He was a man who worshipped God. He was a man who loved God deeply. He had relationships, didn't he? We, we see that. 
We had relationships. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had a lot of possessions, which meant he had money, right? He had 11,000 animals, sheep, camels, oxen, donkeys. He had, he had very many servants, the text tells us, also revealing his wealth. He, he had, he had um, uh, uh, parties. He had his leisurely time, right? His, his seven sons would throw parties. They would invite their three sisters and they would have good food and good drink. And at these, after these parties, Job would get up and work, work hard. Work hard doing what? Offering burnt offerings for each of his children. We're told in verse 5 of chapter 1 that Job did these things continually, continually. And, and so Job has what? Well, let's just walk through these. He has relationships. He has leisurely time with his family. He has good, hard work. And he has money. Probably lots of it. And to top it all off, he feared God and turned away from evil. This was the guy that we look at and, and sometimes get angry with, right? Because he's got it all together. He's the Ned Flanders of our life. We, we just get angry with the guy. Now, you may never have 3,000 camels. That, that may never be the case. Hopefully not. In fact, I think there's an ordinance in the city that you can only have five, right? So, so, so you may never have that many camels. You may never have 10 children, which in your eyes may be the same as 3,000 camels. But you may never have that. But can't we relate with Job in, in, in what he has experienced? That everything seems to be going his way. That he's got relationships, that he's got leisure, that he's got work, that he has money. And everything seems to be going his way. We've, we've had seasons like that. And then the story turns, doesn't it? And the only reason it takes a turn is because of sin. Because of sin and evil entering a world. Satan comes to God. Listen, Satan comes to God. And what happens? If you know the story, does, does Satan ask God to tempt Job? He doesn't. He, he doesn't. In fact, God is the one who initiates the conversation. He says in, in chapter 1, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? Have you, Satan, considered my servant Job? And so here's what I'd like us to see in this. And this is crucial in our understanding, really, of all things. Of all things, not least the topic of suffering. We could build a life's theology around this, and we should. So listen, God is over everything. He's over everything. Satan is not more powerful than God. Satan is not the one who created us. God did. God has authority and dominion over our lives. Satan does not. We've got to read that. It's there. Satan does nothing without God's understanding, without God's knowledge, without God's authority. We've got to understand that. That's a life's theology. It seems as if Satan understands that. It seems here in the text, and it seems as if Satan understands the draw of the things of this earth, right? Because that's what he, he goes after. Satan believes the only reason that Job follows God is because God has given him stuff. In fact, look at chapter 1, verse 9. Satan believes that the only reason Job follows God is because God's given him stuff. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. It says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? And the answer there is, of course not. So that, that's what he's, that's what Satan is, is putting in front of us. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. 
But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. You see that? So here's what Satan says. He says, you've given him relationships, you've given him leisure, you've given him work, you've given him money. Take that away and he'll curse you. So, so listen, this is exactly what Satan desires to have us believe. Satan wants us to believe that we should follow God, not because of God, but because of the things God gives us. Satan wants us to believe that, and Satan has a pretty good reason to, to want that, because he's seen us want that too, right? He, he's seen us want the things that God can offer, but not God. If things go well in life, and we're all in, right? Things begin to crumble, and we scream, where are you now, God? But when we believe that God is for us only when things are going well, we're believing Satan's doctrine. God says to Satan, go for it. You go for it. Everything in his possession is up for grabs. Go for it. And so one by one, here's what happens. One by one, a messenger of Job's comes running to Job. Right? The Sabians from the north have come and they kill, they've killed your oxen, they've killed your donkeys and, and your servants. And as that messenger is speaking, another one runs up and says, A fire of God fell from heaven and burned up your sheep and the servants near the sheep. And another messenger comes as that one's talking and says, From the south the Chaldeans came in three groups and took your camels and killed your servants who were near the camels. And, and even as that messenger was talking, another one runs up and says, While... While your children were enjoying leisurely time with food and wine, a wind came, a, a tornado came swooping down and destroyed the house and all of them are dead. So listen, what did Job lose? What, what did Job lose? In one day, in, in fact, maybe in a minute, he lost relationships. His sons and daughters are gone. He lost his leisurely time. The parties that they had as a family were gone. He lost his work. All of his livestock, gone. He lost his money. He saw the loss of his children. 11,000 animals. Every servant but the four who came running up, who, who escaped, brought Job the, the bad news. Everything was gone. And so now what? Now, now what for the life of Job? Now Now what? Well, look what Job says. Look at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 20. Nope, sorry, chapter 1, verse 20. Look at the end of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 20. Look what Job says. Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Listen, in all of that, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. If that could be our response... If that could be our response in times of trial, in times of suffering, Job, Job grieves deeply, doesn't he? He grieves deeply. He tears his clothes. He shaves his head. He falls to the ground and does what? Worships God. He worships God. This is not Satan's doctrine. That, that's not Satan's way of thinking. This is not a view of God that, that, that requires God to give us good things or else. This is not a view of entitlement. The, the thought that says, God, I'm comfortable now and you owe me. 
God, God, keep me comfortable in all of my, my standards of comfort. God, do that and I'm in. God, keep this lifestyle going and I will worship you if you keep this up. I'll honor you. I'll obey you. I'll follow you. You owe me, God. That's not the kind of mentality that Job has at all. He knows that God owns everything. God, you gave it. God, you you give it because it's all yours and you also take it because it's all yours. Praise be to your name. The suffering coming for Job is actually not over yet. If you know the story, you know that Satan is again approached by God. He's approached by God and Job is offered by God as one for Satan to afflict. Satan again says, the only reason, the only reason that Job trusts you is because he has good health. It's the only reason he, he trusts you. And listen, isn't that where we are sometimes? To trust God when health is good. I would say one of the things that, that pushes us out of control more than anything else is our health. You can eat all the right foods and stay away from all the wrong foods. You can take the supplements and the powders and you can rub oils all over your body all day long, right? In your ears and your nose and on your dog. You can work out. Or you can work out to the point of lifting a house. You can run a million miles. You can do all the routine maintenance on that shell you call your body. But the stomach bug will enter your house. It will. Or, or worse. It, it will, and, and that's not a mistake. Right? We can't say, well, what happened here? That, that, that's a mistake. That's not outside of God's sovereign and authoritative will. It's not. We're told in chapter 2, verse 7, that Satan struck Job with sores all over his body from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Job loses his health. We didn't even touch on that one. Right? We could go next week on health. Job loses his health and not just a common cold. His health is shot and the suffering then continues. How's it continue? His wife, the woman God gave him, his wife says, really? You holding on to that God? You're holding on to that? Curse God and die already. And, and, and what does Job say to that, that darling wife of his? What does Job say? Look at chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Men, by the way, don't, probably not a good, good route to go with that. All right? But he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Listen, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. But there's relief coming, right? There's got to be a better part of this story. There's got to be something coming, and there is. In the next verses, when Job has lost it all, he's lost his children, his wealth, his health, lost the support of his wife, Job's friends, finally, right, something. Job's friends come in and sit with him, and they comfort him. For, for seven days, they sit with him, and they weep with him. There's a comfort there. And then for 36 chapters, Job's friends say, come on already, get over it. Right? Get over it. You, you've sinned or something, Job. Confess and repent. You, you, we get it. Right? You've lost a lot, Job. We get it. Get over it. You, you've suffered. Get over it already. And, and of course, in the midst of that, 
Job then begins to wonder, yeah, where are you, God? What have I done? What gives? Which is exactly what we would do, right? Which is exactly what some of us even in this room are doing right now. Questioning God. Doubting God. Wondering uh, about the character of God. Struggling to understand why. Job's life, even though extreme in his suffering... I think we have to say that's extreme, right? Even though extreme in his suffering is an example, is a case study in suffering. God's intent for us was to be in right relationship with him, enjoying him, enjoying all the good things of this earth because the end of our enjoyment was him. That was God's intent. God's intent was, was never that we would suffer. When sin entered the world, so did evil, so did suffering, so did trial, so did hardship. Suffering is a direct result of sin. Now, listen very carefully. I did not say, because you sinned yesterday, you will suffer today. That's not, that's not what I said. That's karma, right? I did something yesterday, watch out, it's coming today. That, that's not at all. Sure, there, there are natural consequences of sin. Right? And suffering that comes along with those, those natural and sinful choices, right? You drink to the point of drunkenness, which by the way is sin. You drink to the point of drunkenness, you will suffer the effects of that. Alright, a, a failed liver, poor one night choices, fatal car wrecks, jail time, broken relationships, and, and, and on and on. But there is also suffering that is not directly related to a choice you've made. That is directly related to sin being a part of God's good world. A world that God intended as good. Your, your suffering is directly related to sin entering that. It's directly related. Job's life's an example, right? God said on multiple occasions to Satan, Job is upright. There's no one like him. He's blameless. Try him. All suffering is a direct result of sin. And so there's the case, there's the framework, what do we need? What do we need in the midst of that? We need the transformation of the gospel on our hearts in the midst of suffering. Knowing very clearly that suffering is a result of sin should be then a trigger in our minds to remember our need for a Savior, a Redeemer, someone who is making all things new. And I'd like to be able to say that a deeper belief in the gospel will take away suffering. But it won't. It won't necessarily take away suffering. Right? Job tore his clothes and he worshipped God in the midst of suffering. And God allowed suffering to continue. So I'd like to be able to say that, that, that we have a deep belief in the gospel and suffering ends, but that's not the case at all. In fact, Paul, one of the guys who wrote most about the gospel in 2 Corinthians, we read about his life that he was whipped near death five times. He was beaten with robs, rods. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked three times. He was abandoned at sea. He was cold. He was miserable. He was without food. He was without drink. He was anxious. We're told in Second Corinthians he was anxious for those he was serving. This is a man who deeply believes the truth of the gospel. Paul, so hear me. Well, a deep belief in the truth of the gospel does not take suffering away, but it will change our perspective. It will change our hope. How? 
And that's what I'd like to do this morning, is suggest eight ways, there are many, 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 eight ways that the gospel changes our perspective of suffering. And so here's what they are. First, in the midst of suffering, the gospel points us to the greatness of our sin. And here's what I mean by that. We've talked about it already. When we suffer, we are made aware of our own sin. We're made aware of the, the sin around us, the evil around us. We are reminded that we suffer because we live in a fallen world uh, of which we are a part of, uh, of that world. When we suffer or we seek the suffering or see the suffering of others around us, we are reminded of the brokenness that sin has brought. Now that seems dark and gloomy, but this can be used for good. It can be used as an opportunity for confession. So let me say this one again. In the midst of suffering, the gospel points us to the greatness of our sin. And so it can point us to confession. God, in my suffering, I am reminded that I am living in a world affected by sin, wrecked by sin. I'm reminded that I'm a sinner in need. Forgive me. In our suffering, that should be a trigger for us that we're in a fallen world in need of a Savior. That's God's grace to us. that, That reminder. Secondly, In the midst of suffering, the gospel reminds us that we are not in control. We're not in control, but we know the God who is. We think of Job's life. God was all over that. Nothing happened. Nothing happened outside the sovereign hand of God. And so when you're you're facing suffering, even now as you face suffering, some of you, you're certainly reminded that you're not in control, right? I mean, that's stripped away from you all the time in the midst of suffering, but we know who is. God has a plan for this. You may never know what that plan is. You, you may never know what that plan is. Jesus, our Lord, knew that truth. He, he knows the truth that God is in control because hours before he was to be killed, Jesus, our Lord, who is God, spoke to his Father. In Luke 22, and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. You're in control. Our Savior rested in the plan of God, and we are beneficiaries of Him resting in the plan of God. That He didn't go against it. That that He submitted to the fact that He was there for the severe suffering of the cross. He submitted to that. Third, in the midst of suffering, the gospel points us to our need points us to our need. When we suffer, we realize that we are desperately in need. We, we often, though, do what? We, we face inward, right? When we suffer, we begin to face inward because in our suffering, we're reminded over and over and over again that we're suffering. And so everything just circles back in on ourselves. That we're in need, we're in need, I'm in need, I'm in need, I'm in need. And, and at times in our suffering, we're helpless to do anything to change our situation. We felt that, haven't we? There's nothing I can do to change this situation. And although it doesn't seem like it at the time, this is God's good for us. When we suffer, often our first inclination is to pull away from community, to isolate ourselves from others. We feel alone in our suffering, and in part, we've often chose to be alone. In our suffering, we're reminded over and over and over and over again that we are in need of help. We need God's help. 
and we need the help of others around us. And the beauty of the Christian community is in knowing that Christ our Savior suffered and that because of sin we all suffer and that we're in this together. That we can circle up together. That others have been there before me. That we can lean on them. And that's humbling, isn't it? That, that we have that kind of need, that we need others, that's humbling. But we, we've got to remember what Paul tells us in Romans twelve fifteen. He commands us to not just to rejoice with those who, who rejoice. That'd be, a, that'd be a great life, right? But he also says weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. Third, or fourth, in the midst of suffering, the gospel prepares us to comfort others. We actually have a part to play in comforting others related to this previous one. We've got to remember, we've got to believe that God allows us, no, God causes us to go through suffering so that we are able to comfort others. It's It's only in a deep belief of the gospel that we're able to look beyond ourselves to see that there's a reason, that there's a reason for this, although we we may not know it, there's a reason, and part of that reason for our suffering is so that we can comfort others. And where does that that thought start? It starts in knowing that Christ has suffered and can sympathize with us. It can comfort us. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us. Because he's been there. He's been there in part so that we can be comforted. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Remember Job's so-called friends? who in the midst of his suffering, they came to rebuke him. They came to call him out. They came to say, get over it, Job. Get, get over it. And we're not told why. Right? This is speculation, so don't write this down. But this is speculation. We're, we're not told this. But, but par- partly, I, I, I think about this, and, and the reason they did not comfort Job is because they had not yet faced that kind of suffering. They didn't know what to do. Your suffering is allowing you, it's preparing you to comfort others. Five years ago, we, we would have never chosen for our eight-month-old son to go through a catastrophic seizure disorder. It wrecked us. It's still wrecking us in, in some ways. But it has allowed us the opportunity to comfort others who have faced similar pains. That is absolutely part of God's plan for your suffering. Absolutely. Five. In in the midst of suffering, the gospel compels us to endure in the mystery. In the in the mystery. And near the end of the book of Job, we're told that God answers Job out of the whirlwind. That's mysterious, right? That God comes in in a whirlwind to answer. Even the language of whirlwind is mysterious and unknown. And that's, that's how God answers Job. He begins to question Job with unanswerable questions. Really what he's trying to communicate to Job is this. It's not your job to figure out why. You may not figure it out. And so in the midst of suffering, we've got to remember that you are, that you are, that I am not in control, that God has a plan, that this isn't a mistake, that this may always be a mystery. Your suffering may always be mysterious, but God endures forever. 
that he is steadfast, that he is stable. And of this we can be certain that neither life nor death nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Savior. Nothing. The deep truth of the gospel compels us to endure the mystery. Paul tells us in Romans 8, he says this, For I consider that... That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's mysterious, isn't it? That the sufferings of this present time that we actually do know about are not not worth comparing to something we don't know about. This mysterious thing that's out there. In other words, the suffering now, even though we have no idea why we're facing it, it's not worth comparing to what will one day be revealed. And so we wait. And and so we wait and we endure the, the mystery that's there. Number six, in the midst of suffering, the gospel assures us that God God sustains our faith. That God is the one who sustains our faith. So many of you know this so much better than me. that That it's easy to begin questioning. It's easy to begin doubting in the midst of unbelievable pain and suffering. The temptation, I think, in those times is to probably believe that you have to you have to work and work and work to keep your faith. Right? I feel it, feel it slipping away from me, so I've got to work to try to keep my faith, to try to bolster this faith. And, and it's true that we've got to keep seeking the face of God. We, we've got to keep doing that. We've got to keep seeking the face of the sovereign God. But it's God who sustains us. It's God who sustains our faith. Kirsten, over time, has communicated with me that in the midst of a a lot of the pain that she has walked through with our son, with the agonizing torment of anxiety that comes with that and depression that comes with that, that she knows it's only God who has sustained her. Throughout the Bible, we were reminded that our suffering is producing endurance and faith. It's producing endurance and faith that comes as, as a gift of God. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, we're told this, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The, the God of all grace sustains our faith. He's the one that's doing that. He has called us to be a part of his eternal family because of Jesus. He will restore us. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will sustain your faith. He will. Number seven. In the midst of suffering, the gospel causes us to rejoice. And all of us at once say baloney, right? Do you remember Job's words, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In this, Job is recognizing that God is over all. He's over everything, and in that, he can praise him, he can worship him. Paul says in in Romans chapter 5, that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And there are so many places in Scripture where we can look at him, and Paul talks in these kinds of ways that we should rejoice in our suffering. Does that frustrate you? You've been in times of suffering and you think, how do we rejoice in this? Paul seems to have this happy, like, click of the heels thing all the time. Does that frustrate you? How can Paul say that? 
I think he can say that by, by the last one. I'll, I'll walk through number eight. In, in the midst of suffering, the gospel gives us hope for eternity. I don't mean for, for something that's out there. I mean starting now for eternity. The, the gospel, in the midst of suffering, the gospel gives us hope for eternity. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance all the way to the end where there is hope. Now how does suffering give us hope? How, how does that happen? How does that, that reveal to us hope? This is the beauty of the gospel, and I want us to see this so, so clearly as we wrap up this series. It goes all the way back to God's intent in the garden that our sin is there and, and the curses that were dealt out. And, and here's how. In the garden, Satan was also handed a curse by God. God says in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the hope of the gospel. Here's how. One day the offspring of a woman, Christ Jesus himself, will be bruised. He will suffer. He will come under the effects of sin and death. He will be bruised, but in being bruised in his suffering, he will bruise the head of the enemy. Do you get this picture? I want us to get this picture. I've got these cushy shoes on right now, but I want us to get this picture of some boot, right? That Jesus himself will step on Satan, will crush him, will, will crush his head, will crush the effects of sin and death. And he did. He, he did. Does God keep his promises? Friends, does God keep his promises? He, he does. Jesus wins. That's our hope. Jesus says in John chapter 16, in the world you will have tribulation. You're going to have suffering, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have. Jesus wins. In the midst of suffering, the gospel gives us hope for eternity. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For this light, momentary affliction. Is that what you're experiencing? doesn't feel like that, right? This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our our suffering may seem harsh, not light, right? It may seem harsh, but in light of what Jesus has accomplished, in light of eternity with him, it's momentary. It's momentary. It's preparing us for the day that's beyond all comparison. It's preparing us for an eternity with Jesus. At the end of the book of Job, we get to this place where God restores everything and more to him. And isn't that what we want? Right? At the end of this suffering, God's going to give me back my, my stuff. But listen, friends, we have way more hope than that. We have way more hope than just getting back our our stuff because of Jesus. Our hope is not in the things here, but in an eternity with him. An eternity with the one who's making all things new. And and we're told how this will go down in Revelation chapter 21. Here's how I want to end. I want us to see this. It says this, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Listen, friends, in the midst of suffering, as a result of our own sin and the sins of others around us, in the midst of suffering, our hope is not in this life, but in the fact that God keeps his promises, that Jesus wins, and that suffering will be no more. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Can I pray that we would as we move toward an eternity with Jesus? Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you this morning. So many of us, even here in this room, facing things that we never thought we would have to face. Never would we imagine that we have to face the trial and hardship that we're facing now. Broken relationships with children. Broken relationships with spouses. Broken relationships with parents. Never did we think we would have to face that. Never did we think we would have to to lose what we enjoy. Never did we think that we would have to lose, lose the job we loved. The work we enjoy doing. Never did we think we would have to be in a financial situation that we're in. But here we sit. And so God, my prayer for us as a body, as a family, would be that you would be our comfort. Your word says that you are the God of all comforts who comforts us in our time of need. And so for those in this room who are facing that time of need right now, God, I pray that you would be their comfort. God, for us as a family, I pray that we would then see this as an opportunity to wrap around one another and and comfort one another. You know our hurts. You know our pains. You know the things that we're wrestling with. You know the things that have been ongoing for so long. You know those things. And you've provided your son to come to earth to live this life in part so that he could sympathize with us. And God, where we don't feel that, I pray that you would, through your spirit, open our hearts to be comforted by the fact that Jesus, your son, is able to sympathize. And God, one day, we look forward to this day, one day, when Jesus returns, And the promise is fulfilled that there will be no more crying, that there will be no more sadness, that there will be no more death, that there will be no more pain, that there will be no more suffering. We wait for that day where Jesus returns and makes all things new. And until that day, God, would you help us to endure? Would you help us to endure the mystery and still praise you? All these things we ask in the name of your Son. Amen.